welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damonosophy 2.0 with your host, Paul Frederick. Greetings, friends and fellow Damons, and welcome to another episode of Damonosophy 2.0, the only podcast fighting for liberty and the left-hand path. And you may notice that today I'm wearing my Pandemonium t-shirt. And the reason for that is that in a few moments, we're going to be interviewing Ed Pandemonium himself, um, author of The Black Ship and many other awesome books. And he's got a new book uh, coming out called The Karma Book. And we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about his ideas uh, regarding the concept of uh, pandemonium and many other exciting things. So that's coming up. So stick around for that. Also, um, this is um, one of our initial attempts at going video with the podcast. So, you know, it's uh, technology is like that. Um, we like to press the limits and see how far we can go with things. So, um, so happy to have you here and join us in this process of discovery. So a couple of things I want to talk about before we get to pandemonium. One is to remind you all of the Flambeau Noir conference 2018 that is coming up here soon in the International Left Hand Path Conference in Portland, Oregon, USA for three days of philosophy, magic, and art in Portland, Oregon, and that's on the weekend of April 27th to the 29th, and I'm going to be there. I'm going to uh, have uh, lots of good stuff with me. I'm going to have like some uh, Black Flame Tarot decks and some books, and uh, my uncle Janoush, who is the first guy to actually teach me magic as a child. He taught me how to palm a quarter. Uh, he's going to be there with me. He's going to be giving uh, tarot readings with the Black Flame Tarot deck, so that's going to be really exciting. Um, so be sure and come out for this. You don't want to miss it. It's April 27th to the 29th, and, and you can get tickets uh, by going to www.flambonoir.org, or if you search Flambeau Noir on uh, Facebook, you can probably find the site where you can order stuff. Um, and that's F-L-A-M-B-E-A-U-N-O-I-R.org. Flambeau Noir is an international left-hand path conference. It's an exclusive, esoterically-oriented event inviting rebels and iconoclasts to revel together, exploring the latest in occult philosophy, literature, music, performance, and art. And in addition to uh, myself... You will also see presenters such as Venus Satanis, the spiritual Satanist, Peter Gray, iconic occult author, co-founder of Scarlet Imprint, which makes some of the bad-assest looking occult books around. I've got a couple of them in my library, and I love them. 
Uh, so super excited to see him. There's Reverend uh, Stephen Johnson Leva, Michael Ford, uh, Luciferian Magic Adept and Author, uh, Coyote the Blind, Mona Magic, Sean Donahue, Griffin CED, Thomas Leroy, Marcus McCoy, and of course, our good friend Jeremy Crow, who we've had on the show here before. So very excited about that. So the second thing that I wanted to tell you about is uh, Serious Workings Volume 4 is coming out soon. It looks like this. I'm going to hold it up here so you can see it. Ah, there we go. Yeah. Serious Workings Volume 4. Uh, so this is the fourth um, edition of the Serious Workings. And the Serious Workings is a journal of the work of the esoteric order of Beelzebub, which is an order of the Temple of Set. That's uh, the, the one that I work in primarily. And so this is a, a compendium of, of workings, of essays and articles and reflections and, and uh, magic and stuff like that. It's like really good, see, like you can see the table of contents there. Oh, it's kind of small, I know you can't read it, but um, there is chapter headings like uh, creation of time during periods of acute stress, connecting with the Prince of Darkness. That sounds like fun. Gurdjieff and the Black Flame, two of my favorite things. And this um, edition has an exclusive interview with Dr. Aquino. So some of you right, might remember um, an earlier edition of the show, we did an interview with Dr. Aquino. And so not everyone knows that was actually the second interview uh, that I did with Dr. Aquino. We did a first interview, and due to technical uh, difficulties, the interview uh, wasn't usable for the audio on the show. Uh, therefore, it was not used. However, to get it transcribed, and so that's what appears in the book. Um, and it's not the same as the interview that you hear um, on the show. I feel we get a little bit deeper into some of his mind war topics, uh, things like uh, 1984 and the police state and where we are as a society and as a culture. So it's fascinating. So, I mean, if it was me, that alone would be worth uh, getting this book. And also, this is the first one that's hard bound. It's hard bound. It's high quality. Check this out. See? Print it, gold printing on black. Awesome. All right. So... Um, that's all the good stuff. So let's uh, go ahead and bring in Pandemonium. What's up, Pandemonium? Very good to be here. Very good to have you. So if it, yeah. I've got the Pandemonium shirt on in case I see. anyone didn't see this earlier. I've got my Pandemonium shirt on. Um, it's got the uh, panda bears. <laughs> Delightful. Pandemonium. <laughs> right. So, so welcome to the show, my friend. I'm so well, glad that we finally um, are having the opportunity to do this. We've known each other for years. Um, I've been influenced by your work for years, so it's awesome that. Um, Vice versa. Thank you. Very glad we're finally getting the opportunity to do this. So. Let's talk about let's talk about the left-hand path. What is your concept of the left-hand path? How did you come to the left-hand path? How did the left-hand path find you? Tell us about 
all that? Well, we've talked about this a little bit before, but I'll just, you know, skim over it somewhat. I was always pretty much left-hand path, and there are there are people who say that, so I'll elaborate. I got into magic, occultism, uh, very young, like, I mean, very young, mm -hmm. like elementary school young, and... Uh, pretty much left to my own devices as a child. So I got into like a lot of nefarious things that adults would normally have uh, put the kibosh on, you know, if they were paying attention. And, uh, but that's just as well, because, you know, that's become my whole life over the course of time. And uh, I can't say that I was strict left-hand path in the kind of philosophical way that I am now, but I was always, you know, in spirit, in heart, mm -hmm. left-hand path. I uh, originally was involved with, you know, just very traditional things that I was reading about, like uh, the grimoires and traditional witchcraft lore and things like that. And then when I got a little older into my teens, found out about chaos magic and Crowley and all those kind of standard things. Then uh, in my 20s, I just went through a wide variety of diverse things that I won't even go into now because it would just be too many digressions. But by the time I was in my late twenties, I had, uh, well, throughout my twenties, I had been kind of looking at the temple set in different ways. I even tried to join once when I was younger than I, than when I did a few years younger and my letter got rerouted wrong or something like that. And I just didn't reapply cause I was doing other things. And then uh, finally, when I joined uh, in my late 20s, I was 29. That's the very late 20s, right? So uh, within a year, all of my, all of my uh, things from the past had crystallized into this uh, pandemonium concept that I, that I work with now. And uh, so... So that and my adept recognition were about were about the same time mm -hmm. as each other. And uh, basically what happened was I realized that all of my uh, personal obsessions and interests that seemed so diverse, you know, I had been worried about them because you get into a Crowleyan concept of true will and things like that. And I was like, well, what am I going to do with my life? Do I have to pick just one of these things or mm -hmm. can I fit a few together? And fortunately, I realized that this word pandemonium being the capital city of hell in Paradise Lost was a good umbrella term because all of the things fit together if I was building a city or a culture or, or something like that. So, so everything just kind of came to that point. And then ever since then, it's been 18 years now since that idea came to me that significant number of 18 years. No, that's a very significant number. Isn't that, yeah. um, the, uh, 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 the number of, uh, considered a what working, Anton working? LeVay called a working. Yes. Right. And it's, and it's interesting because when I put out the black ship, it was the ninth year, which is the peak. And it, that's just when it happened. I didn't plan it that way or, or, or anything, but those 18 years since, has been things coming out of that point. Everything came to that point from my previous life, and then ever since then, things have been coming out of it. 
like for example, you go to uh, the story Paradise Lost itself, and the city of Pandemonium is uh, brought into being specifically by Satan Mulciber, who is a demon that is actually Hephaestus or Vulcan, the the classical god of metal smithing and technology by extension, mm-hmm. and Mammon, who uh, is the patron or symbol for gold or money and uh you know if you look at that literally then you have satan as individualism you have commanding demanding the city be built so the principle of individualism demands that pandemonium come into existence uh mammon or economics provides the substance and then mulciber or hephaestus or vulcan provides the technology by which the work is actually done. And of course we have so many new interesting technologies now that are, you know, disruptive to previous social structures, especially along the idea of decentralization, decentralized money, decentralized uh, manufacturing through, through uh, 3d printing, things like that. Uh, So that was interesting, but then also the, just the word pandemonium itself, has a triplicity in it because it means all demon place. So you think of the demon as the most ear-catching part of the word, and that, you know, is comparable in in classical uh, mythology in some ways to what Crowley called the heart, holy guardian angel. Mm-hmm. His his Liber Samic in in as a matter of fact is subtitled Congress with the Demon. So he used the term also himself. And there you simply have the idea of integrating the best part of yourself. And, and, and there are non-occult things like uh, psychosynthesis and, and other psychological schools that deal with the integration of the whole psyche and becoming your best self and so on. So you have this idea of people becoming their best selves, which is, you know, what we talk about with initiation in the temple set, obviously. But these things can be explained to everyone in the world because these other philosophies and, and, and methodologies exist. Then you're talking about all the demons in Pandemonium. So you're talking about a community. You're talking about social dynamics uh-huh. and so on. So then you have to re-engineer your social dynamics to be commensurate or reflect the new being that you've become, you're upgrading that part of your life. And then the place has to do with environment or, you know, material culture, material reality. So what pandemonium really ultimately is, is a continuum of existence that has a psychic dimension, a social dimension, and an environmental or material dimension. And the issue is in engineering your social and environmental dimension those dynamics in accord with becoming a greater and greater being and thus your pandemonium comes into existence and his pandemonium comes into existence and her pandemonium comes into existence decentralized in that fashion but ultimately it all spawns an entirely new culture and there are other triplicities and trinities too like for example in alchemy you have sulfur and mercury and salt in which i won't go into a digression about alchemy but that's also applicable to the same thing 
and then we could compare pandemonium to the stone in that way. And I often call pandemonium the black earth and say that the black earth remanifests the black flame because this continuum of existence, this ecology of consciousness or becoming is what supports and draws out and remanifests that black flame. So that's been my guiding principle since I've uh, been actively involved in the left-hand path as, as the left-hand path, as opposed to just earlier notions of occultism and dark magic and whatever I was drawn to just on, on a purely instinctual kind of level. Absolutely. Um, I agree with so many things that you said in there or so many things that you've uh, mentioned in there are, are things that I resonate with initiatorily. Um, one thing you said is that, and, and I, I believe this is in the, um, in the, in the, uh, within the system of, uh, suggested in, in, in paradise Lost that, uh, in individualism, the principle of individualism, gives birth uh, or commands the, the, the principle of, of Mammon. Was that, did I, did well, I hear that correctly? Well, no, individualism corresponds to Satan, mm-hmm. you would say, because the, Satan was the rebellious angel to, to begin with, and so that represents individualism, and Satan in the story is the one that commanded pandemonium to be built. So we could take that allegorically as the idea that individualism Mm -hmm. as a philosophy, as a viewpoint, as a way of being demands this reconstruction of the continuum of social and environmental dynamics. It demands that pandemonium come into being because you can't, you, you can only, you can only really go so far without that supporting ecology and that reflecting ecology to sustain you and to also make further remanifestations possible. Right. So the question is, is like, what kind of, of, of system is that? What kind of social system is that? What does that look like? Um, because I think that's, that's something that's just completely like mind blowing. It's so mind blowing to most people to think that individualism can just reign because, um, Right. We, we don't have anything like that. We don't experience anything like that. Well, um, because people have many fallacious ideas about individualism. They think it means that there's no cooperation. Mm-hmm. And and I would say you can only ha- really have cooperation under individualism. Otherwise, it's, a, it's coercion. It's not cooperation uh-huh. unless it's voluntary, you know. And I had I had been involved you know, with like, for example, the Libertarian Party and and things like that. I I was the um, chairman of my county affiliate. I had run as a Libertarian Party candidate for the Florida State House of Representatives in 2002. And I had gotten into that kind of thing uh, around the same time I was joining the temple. So it was on the one hand, there was a political philosophy and on the other hand, a spiritual philosophy, and they were kind of informing each other, cross-informing each other, because they were both, you know, individualistically mm-hmm. based. And that's that's what helped me to define the left-hand path more precisely, more rigorously for myself than it than I had in, done previously. And uh, now I'm obviously much more radical. I'm 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 full-blown anarchistic at this point. So I mean, but. What's so, that saying? What's the difference between a libertarian and an anarchist six months on the internet? Hmm. 
Well, what, what is it? What's the difference? What's the difference between a libertarian and an anarchist? Six months on the internet. Oh, six months. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, and, 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 and still like a few, uh, a small shred of, of, of thinking that some aspect of a central authority is, 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 is necessary to protect us from evil. Or I would, I would like to argue a sense of like original sin is still out there. So we need to have like a, uh, a, a force to, uh, protect us from that and, and protect us from ourselves. And so I, I guess where I was going with my earlier thought about, about Mammon and, um, and, and, Maybe you didn't say anything like this, and it just like bounced into my head for some reason. But the idea is that the principle of in- individualism, once it comes into being, um, it it is it is connected with um, or um, it predicates um, the principle of mammon, which uh, has to do, like you said, gold, money. But all of that represents uh, modicums of exchange. All, all of that is, right. is that rep- represents exchange of value. So one of the things that individualism makes possible is like voluntary exchange of value. It does not Absolutely. exist before individualism. There's no such thing as uh, um, you know voluntary exchange of anything because there's no voluntary. There's no there is no voluntarism at all. There is no free will at all before individuality arises um, and, and and enters the picture. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, of course, and that that goes back to what I said about it being a the, probably a primary fallacy that's out there about individualistic philosophy is that it's anti-cooperation when it's entirely predicated on 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 cooperation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, so that's, but you know, that's that's a that's a slog trying to explain that in certain circles <laughs> and so on. So I mean, but. We just we just do what we do. I I I, I uh, actually am not so much interested in like political issues of the day and things like that anymore, because I just see them as symptoms. I'm like if 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 you mm-hmm. follow this pandemonium formula and you work on the people as individuals, if you create the relationships among those people, and if you create the technologies and uh, the environments that support those relationships, then a lot of the political hullabaloo becomes uh, obsolete and pointless because it just uh, fades away because the new thing just evolutionarily goes beyond it. Well, you know, I think one one thing, and I, know I mean, it, it might not fade away very quietly, obviously, right, because right. You know how its political structures are, but. No, it doesn't fade away. It's such. It's it's such. Uh, it's the nature of the beast that um, these political things sort of make a lot of noise and uh, reiterate uh, and 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 encourage themselves and replicate themselves. Um, but I think you know one of the things that's like really challenging about looking at you know current events and stuff like that is that it, it challenges you to try and, and think about what is the right thing to do. What is the right solution for this and 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 that's kind of at the root of like all all political ideas and political memes and 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 whatnot that goes that comes out there there's always an idea behind it there's an ideology behind it that says this is the right thing to do there's always like casting a judgment on one side or the other and usually it's on the individualistic side that's being judged that's why in our culture we've come up that it's been so 
uh, it, it's been so naturalistic for us who follow the left-hand path to approach the idea of individualism and the idea of you know, Satan, Lucifer, and the Prince of Darkness as being a representative of that because you know, our earliest, some of the earliest mythologies that we come in contact with in you know, Western culture is the serpent in the Garden of Eden, and you remove the, the, the political ideology from it, and rather than, than the serpent um, you know, being man's downfall, well, he's like the awakening. It's awakening of individuality within beings and this idea of, uh, of a, um, a precious gift being in there. But for my, my experience, and this, uh, you know, it's pre- I don't think it's too far off from yours um, in, 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 in principle, but for me, political questions and political ideas and stuff like that and, and controversies, there's always like um, a, a disappointment with it. You get excited and wrapped up in something. You think, yeah, this is the right thing to do. And then later on, you think, well, it's not someone actually, you know, everything they do actually hurts someone else, you know, whenever force is applied on a, on a mass scale. Um, and, and so there's this always, there's always these contradictions is, is, is what I'm trying to say. There's always these contradictions within it. And for me, it wasn't until I started getting into these real basic the fundamental ideas of, of the left-hand path of individuality and, and personal responsibility and rational self-interest and all of these things that you start to see that, wow, there is actually a consistent <clears throat> position to take on these questions of the day. There is a, a consistent position to take on it, um, which is, is the, um, you know, generally the right one. It's the moral decision. And you just once you understand that the individual is the uh, is the basis from which everything else flows, then um, it starts to set things right. Right. Well, I mean, the that's that's the ultimate thing is that only individuals are real. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, you look at, for example, the government. What is the government? Can you point to the government? Can you show me the government? You can show me a building with people inside it, individual people operating under a set of ideas, wearing uniforms, cosplay, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. So, but, but it's, it, that's, that's all it is, is ultimately a phantom that people are operating under. And, and, uh, so it's not something that's like, Entrenched, it's not a natural law. It's not a structure or function of the universe, you know. So, which is how you know the status quo or the powers that be are like often thought of. So, just to uh, kind of repeat what I said a few minutes ago, most of the political questions that we have today are questions that can't be answered in the way that they're phrased, in the way that they're framed, you know. So, so. You have to kind of get up outside of them and like come at them from like a right angle, so to speak, or and and the way to do that I think is these these things like you work on the individual person, make individual people better, help them to make themselves better, I should say. Uh let them form the kind of relationships that match the people that they're becoming, the beings that they're becoming, mm-hmm. and uh Obviously, from there, you're going to create institutions, and it works from the bottom up rather than the top down, creating those institutions. And meanwhile, you're creating environments, you're creating new technologies and things, and it just kind of 
it's 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 an organic uh, process rather than a uh, architectural process. So I would say that pandemonium was perhaps not actually built but grown. Is <laughs> is possibly a, a a better way to put it. So oh, absolutely grown and uh, cultivated. Cultivating pandemonium is 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 something that that makes sense to me. And and so I'm remembering one of the most uh, profound things I, I I recall you saying when we were having a discussion about pandemonium is that um, specifically talking about pandemonium as it appears <clears throat> in the Diabolicon. That this is essentially this is essentially telling a story about an anarcho-capitalist uh, social system. Right. Uh, em- emerging, emerging out of out of what? Out of like, out of order, basically, or emerging out of like the you know it's like imagination, this, will, yeah, imagination and will of the demons and yes. freedom and and and, a, and an experience of total freedom away from a a central authority source. Right, and and of course, in the beginning, it was it was rough going. The the pandemonium was a little bit wild, and uh, they got it under control, but. You'll notice that it just kind of came under control out of a process of mutual taking it under control rather than Mm -hmm. uh, Lucifer had become Satan at that point and he wasn't like handing down uh, a list of rules as to how it was supposed to be. I mean, it doesn't really say how it happened, but you know, you can imagine from everything else that's in the diabolicon that that wasn't happening that satan wasn't like showing okay well here's our org chart that shows mm-hmm. how pandemonium works you know <laughs> <laughs> so here's our five-year plan right so no so i if anything i think um it, it, indications are of the opposite. So the the thing that I'm thinking of, and I can't remember where it is in the Diabolicon. At some point, point the demons are talking about, um, well, we we need to like like the the power of the black flame, the power of the gift that man has received is so powerful that he might accidentally hurt himself or someone else with it. They might accidentally hurt each other with this. So maybe we should go down there and we should intercede with them. To make sure that they don't hurt themselves with it, um, which of course, I mean, that's the excuse of all government, all governmental intervention programs, right? That we need to, and and, and all, you know, any sort of central authority has that idea right. that you know this it has the good guy badge of this is why we're going to intercede and we're going to limit your freedom because we're just afraid you're going to hurt yourself with it. But the demons like make a really specific decision in the Diabolicon that no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to interfere because. And then we would just be like the angels. We'd be like the bad guys, right. the central authority yeah. that we just spent all this time getting away from. And now we're going to go oppress these other beings the way we were oppressed? I don't think so. But we'll connect. We'll reach out to them. We'll connect to them so that you know, uh, you know, man knows that he is not alone. We'll uh, you know, give him clues and stuff like that. We'll have, we'll have a voluntary exchange. Sure. And – before we move on to any other topics, I, I want to stress and or rather take the opportunity to recommend this book. You know that I recommend this book all the time to everyone. The Future and Its Enemies by Virginia Postrel. 
is about the philosophy of dynamism versus stasisism, stasism, and uh, it 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 is the diabolicon. It's the same exact message. It's the same exact story, but whereas the diabolicon is written in a spiritual and mythological uh, fashion, um, Virginia Postrel's book is is written from a, a point of view that is you know very much grounded in in, in the real world. Has tons of real-world examples, stories of things that have happened, you know, things like that. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's an incredibly important book. It's, it's possibly, after Harry Brown's How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World, I would say it's the second most important book for anybody living on this planet to wow. read. And I guess between the two of them, those are the, the uh, square and the compass, the warp and the weft of uh, the pandemonium concept as applied to to the to the completely mundane world, the philosophies expressed in those two books. Excellent. So um, a, another book um, out there that you wrote is called The Black Ship, and I yes. know this this is a book. Um, you know, I I read it. I loved it. I know a lot of people read this book, and it had a really uh, profound um, effect on them uh, spiritually, initiatorily. Um, so, um, how, how does the, the pandemonium concept integrate with the black ship? Is that part of your, um, part of the, uh, overriding theme within that book? How did that get involved? Yes. Yes. The black, the black ship is, uh, entirely an, an explication of the pandemonium concept and the, the initial explication of it, because the first section deals entirely with this idea of demonic integration that I spoke about before uh-huh. and, and and consecrating your home, you know, things like that. It's basically creating your own, like, magical version of pandemonium in your own home with your own people. There are further sections, four sections in the book altogether. The next one deals with things like essence uh, described as blood. And, uh, you know, that relates to either Zoe or the Hamblitzoin in Gurdjieff mm-hmm. and, uh, that, that we talk about in, in our own work, both of us. And, and uh, the third section is transmogrification, which is a, a deeper form of transformation and becoming. And then the final section has to do with cosmic alchemy, which is all the different uh, perspectives that have to do with like changing environments or enjoying environments more fully and things like that. The two key things that run throughout that book, though, are the mandala archetype and the sabbat, similar to the witch's sabbat. Mm-hmm in a way, but, but as there's two Sabbaths, there's a great Sabbath, which is like the, which is Sabbath. It's an, it's a chance to do very extreme things, to push yourself and, uh, find new things that you can reintegrate later. And the lesser Sabbath, which is not actually lesser by any means, but had to call it something mm-hmm. right? <laughs> is, uh, is, is more, is more, uh, of a weekly kind of meal and home time with the family kind of ritual thing that uh, is basically all about, uh, you know, enjoying the space that you have, enjoying the companions that you have, like in the present moment, enjoying what whatever level of pandemonium that you have right now, because pandemonium can be two people in a room, or it can be a galactic society, mm-hmm. or cosmic society and it can exist at any of those scales in between but you want to 
be sure that you're enjoying what you have now and not just waiting for some future uh, development. So, and the mandala, of course, represents this as, a, as an archetype of wholeness and, and, and represents pandemonium as a whole in that way. So that's, that's what that book is about. So that gives some people some, some tools that they can use. And then also the, the daemon gets involved with that too, right? The idea of the Socratic, uh, you know. Well, that's the very first, that's the very first thing you do is invoke your own personal demonic self into your life. That's step one. And then once you've done that, you start consecrating tools like you would do in any kind of magic. And then, you know, consecrating your home. And then there, there you've done it. You've brought the demon through into your tools to create a space. So, I mean, that's, and that's in the first section of the book before it even goes on to uh, other more involved things. But once you do those basic things, you've, act, you've created pandemonium on, a, on your own scale. And is that, is that uh, the idea of daemonic integration that by um, invoke, invoking the daemon or um, identifying that aspect of the self that is the the daemon or the higher self or right. or, or the holy guardian angel um, yes it is it's you bring on the one hand of course we have this tradition of the holy guardian angel through Abramelin and crowley and philema and that kind of thing and then on the other hand we have uh roberto asajoli uh, the psychosynthesis school and this is kind of an idea that mashes the two together, you know. So demonic integration is the idea that you bring this demonic characterization down and integrate it into your mundane human personality. And then you start examining the unconscious subpersonalities that exist within your psyche and bringing them into alignment around this axis so that you're unified and integrated that's what you're doing in psychosynthesis, but it's the same thing as in in Abramelin. What do you do in Abramelin? You invoke your holy guardian angel, and then you conquer the princes of hell and the demons. You bring. It's the same psychological process. So mm-hmm. recognizing that, we can use psychological processes. We can use neurolinguistic programming, hypnosis, things like that. Uh, on the other hand, we can use full-blown uh, ritual. You know everything from the occult tradition. We can we can have all those things and whatever works to uh, satisfy that process and to make it work. So, so uh, some of these things that you're talking about here, um, they start to resonate um, with. I, I feel like some of the ideas um, that I was working with in 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 Damonosophy, and right. you know I feel you know. Yeah, other people have like commented that these two books, The Black Ship and Demonosophy, are kind of companions, and they're both sort of like have this uh, revered, well, we, you know. We discussed that before it even came out. That's why I wrote the introduction for you. Right. No, which uh, absolutely, I totally, totally appreciate. And um, you know, I feel like Demonosophy. It's like we kind of like took um, some of these ideas about uh, the daemon and demonic integration and started to move into more of the um, social level of it. And I realize now a lot of what I was trying to do was trying to unpack, and, 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 and this could be said for um, the Airbeth transmissions as well. I'm trying to unpack that question about, okay, what sort of like reality does this like create? 
um, with um, all these beings. You know, once, once, right. once, you know, you as an individual, just a regular person, I mean, we all start as just, you know, regular, you know, dumbasses in life, right? And then, and then we find the right, we find, you know, some, the, the right kind of material, we find the right kind of other people, and then we start to make progress, and then we uh, encounter the daemon, and then maybe we become, we experience demonic integration, we start to become daemons, and so we start to emerge, emerge into this new sort of reality. And so then the question becomes, how do we continue on, on from there? How do we interact with others who are emerging? And how do we interact with those who have not emerged? And that's where it becomes very challenging and problematic because we have a society which doesn't always appreciate these sort of activities. Most concepts of religion in our society are not about emerging as an individual. They're about obeying uh, being obedient and following the rules and, and having children and, 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 and doing all the good things that you're supposed to do according to a central authority source. So, um, right. that's, that's where it gets, that's where it gets like very <clears throat> challenging, I think. But so at another, uh, common theme, I feel that, uh, ran throughout them is the idea of, uh, the idea of substance, the idea that there's a substantial or even subst- a super substantial aspect to all of this stuff which goes back to the idea of the black flame. Um, like you said, right. hem, Hembledzewin, the idea of a... Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, you're talking about substance in that way, and I'm talking about the black earth. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, come, it, come, it comes down to much the same thing. So, mm-hmm. so speaking of black earth, let's talk about uh, something else you've been working on for a few years called the Blackheart Campaign. And uh, yes, does it does it have to do with uh, Joan Jett? I I hope so. <laughs> I, tell- I, would, I would I would love to have. Well, Joan Jett is a pretty black heart kind of girl. I mean, aside from the uh, whole backup band name and everything, you know, right. you look at uh, her uh, her whole career. Um, you know, she's going on tour this year, too. Is she? She's opening for sticks. Oh wow! Seriously, <laughs> wow! It's for real, dude. It's gonna happen. I'd kind of like that more the other way around, but okay. <laughs> I, I agree. But you know, I saw I saw Joan Jett um, at Guavaween in Ebor City here in Tampa many years ago. I think it was 1996. She was one of the bands playing and opened with Cherry Bomb. It was it was pretty fantastic. Oh my God, that's awesome. Well, we're and I think Blue Oyster Cult was like on the other side of the field. They were playing too, so it was like right around the same time. Oh wow! So Buck now, Dharma, Buck Dharma from Blue Oyster Cult lives here in my town. Is that right? Actually. Yeah, it's kind of bizarre. So you know, it, Blue Oyster Cult was always one of those bands when I was a kid, like in the in the in the eighties, um, where. That that album, I can't remember which Blue Oyster Cult album it is, but it's like got a fold down. It's got all these guys wearing blue, like they got hoods oh, on, and there's like yeah, right, right. And it's that symbol, which was later used in the John Carpenter film Prince of Darkness, right. to represent the symbol that like you know <clears throat> once you're you know possessed by the uh, right. you know by the dark side, you get this symbol on you. So there was a, part of the urban legend of where I grew up is that Blue Oyster that Cult was, 
were Satanists. Oh yeah, and that was dispelled right. so fast. Yeah. So once you once you start studying a little bit, it's so fast. No, nothing to do, nothing to do with it at all. You know, well, it's it's funny because they drew a lot from Lovecraft, and I I'm a fan of Lovecraft. I often say I write Lovecraftian nonfiction, and uh, the I was at the local historical society one day, and he was telling me his son had written a book because I was trying to donate a couple of my books uh, to their library there. And he was saying, yeah, well, my son wrote a book. Are you familiar with H.P. Lovecraft? And I was like, yeah, I've heard of him, yes. And uh, his son had written this book about H.P. Lovecraft and, and so on. Wow. So I, was like, I was thinking between me and that guy and Buck Dharma, this is a pretty eldritch kind of Suncoast town. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, that's that's pretty amazing. Well, so we digressed a little bit there. We were going to talk yeah. about the Blackheart campaign. Let's uh, yes, let's get back yes, to that. Let's yes. get back to that. <laughs> well, what the Blackheart campaign started out as was um, just the idea that, like, you know, I had been a political activist as I talked about earlier, and uh, been just involved in a lot of underground subcultural things of different types. And you, you, you come up in those kind of things, you get, you get like really resentful, you get bitter, you know, and uh, finally I was just thinking about how, you know, there's a popular kind of new agey saying, energy flows where attention goes and, and the vice versa, attention goes where there's energy to draw it. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, you know, all this energy being expended on the things that we hate or the things that make us angry. I mean, sometimes that's necessary, but we would do so much better to redirect some of that into the things that we love. And especially if those are like obscure or taboo kind of things or just alien or odd sort of things. So I said, okay, take this idea of the black heart as like a symbol and use it to draw people's attention to this principle, making this shift. So wrote up this manifesto for it, put the symbol out there, and uh, it never really took off in that way. I mean, it may still at some point, but so far it really hasn't. Our uh, our friend Lloyd Keene did some black heart art mm -hmm. yep. there in the Great White North. And uh, that was really about it. But the idea continued to evolve with me into a larger concept of like the psychology of pleasure nathaniel brandon talked about the psychology of pleasure and i thought that was a good uh counter to well not counter but corresponding with the idea of indulgence from mm -hmm. anton LeBay and uh you know the uh maslow's hierarchy of needs and and seeing indulgence as a factor that works all the way up that hierarchy of needs and uh even you know, even with Crowley, there were there were things like this. And, and to an extent, we know that Thelema doesn't necessarily mean will in the sense of intention as more like will in the sense of a desire. Mm -hmm. You know, although it is is used magically as as intention now as well. So but I mean, in, in the original meaning of the word desire, like when we talk about God's will, we're talking about what God wants, mm -hmm. for example, because the lemma is used in the in the Bible, mm -hmm. rather than God's intention, you know, 
but I mean, it's hazy. There's a there's a obviously a lot of overlap between the two ideas. But this idea of desire and deep desire, and and bringing these deep desires out and feeding them as indulgence, and and that goes back to the things we've talked about with food, in uh, in fourth way, you know. Uh, especially when you get into like impressions as food, mm-hmm. you know, you get into you get into that. And so I just started to see this uh, this process of using desire more and more as as the fuel for becoming and will uh, in the form of intention as willpower, that kind of thing as as the means. So becoming kefir, we talk about that in the temples, the thing that we want to do. It's, it's our aim, it's our purpose. And Philema is a means of becoming. But I started to ultimately see desire and uh, indulgence as the why of the whole process. And, and if you apply it to that Maslowian hierarchy of needs, you get up into self-actualization and, and uh, in a way, this this becoming that we pursue, this this is is a the most essential indulgence of the self. Mm-hmm. So we're just indulging the self's desire to become, to come into being, to become more, to become more of itself, and just to be more. So absolutely. And I, I mean, I think that's a really important question is like, what fuels this and what feeds this? I mean, it's really profound to say that, um, that the desire uh, precedes will or it, it allows will to ex- or predicates will. Uh, desire, need or wish for something is, is always behind that. <clears throat> but it's not always that clear. Um, from the surface. So it's, it's definitely, um, a, a profound thing to look behind that and see that desire is there. And I think, um, I, I don't know if this is where you were going with it, but, um, I mean, really it's like that, it really gets down to indulgence. Like, and I, I guess, like you said that, um, then you can see like indulgence, like how that actually, um, is, is relevant going all the way up the, uh, the Maslow's hierarchy. It's it's really at every level. Right. And that would also correspond to, you know, Gurdjieff, the different kinds of food that feed the different bodies, the different mm-hmm. aspects of being, map right onto that Maslowian hierarchy. Uh, you can take that hierarchy and map that onto uh, the egg model of the soul that exists in psychosynthesis, where you have the lower unconscious drives and then the higher unconscious drives and then and the... Uh, everyday material kind of drives are in the middle and it, and uh, it all kind of collapses into a single kind of uh, thing and uh, yeah so I'm kind of at a indeterminate point I'm feeling something kind of new coming out of that um, but I, it's not really clear enough to talk about yet but that's that's how, where I've come to with the black heart idea and the black heart material so that's excellent and so and 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 people can find out about the black heart campaign online right there's um 
there's a what what kind of resources are there? Well, I have a uh, a Blackheart uh, Facebook group uh-huh. that I just anything that kind of catches my eye, whether it's like an article on the psychology of pleasure or the chemistry of pleasure in the brain, to just uh, you know a model that I find pretty that day or mm-hmm. something, you know, or or some other particularly striking image that speaks to me of you know desire in that way so and uh since i do most of the posts it uh tends to reflect my own desires and aesthetics more i guess but uh always open to have you know more discussions there on the group if if people want to have them right well excellent so um let's talk about the karma book the new book let's talk about the new book you got a new book i do it's coming out that's so awesome it's out already it's out already awesome it came out in the beginning of february okay perfect it is called the karma sutra okay so clever right Uh (laughs) uh-huh well i think i might have read i think i might have read this it's been out for a long time then huh (laughs) yeah well, I don't know. Don't get mixed up. You'll get very different results, as I, as I told them on the, the recent uh, interview that I did for Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio. We, we just did one where we talked about this book in depth for about an hour and a half. So, mm-hmm. But we can uh, certainly give it a little bit of attention here as well. Yes, well, karma is the fabric of everything because karma is simply cause and effect. It's frequently mischaracterized, but that is what it ultimately is. It means cause and effect. So we look at the world around us. It's made up of causes and effects, and the effects are the causes of new effects and things like that. So everything that we experience is karma, essentially. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that obviously is very relevant to the uh, pandemonium concept, as I explained it earlier because we're talking about the thing the energies and processes by which the world is continuously being made and remade around us and uh an interest and well i was going to say interesting but it's actually somewhat problematic the idea is that most people do not even engage with the idea of karma because they think of it as a kind of new agey uh, concept and the people who do engage with it especially you know in in europe the united states that kind of thing engage with it from a new agey perspective that's not correct they they bring a kind of christian morality into it that karma is judging people and handing out rewards and punishments accordingly right which is not actually true in the sense that they mean it of course you can be rewarded and punished by cause and effect but it's not conscious it's completely impersonal it's completely mechanistic and uh so if karma is the substance and uh energy of everything that we experience and most people aren't engaging with the idea at all, and a lot of people are engaging with it incorrectly, then then obviously you have a, a problem there. So what I wanted to do was create this course that is not traditional at all. It talks about 
ideas and concepts from Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, that kind of thing, but is not entirely true to them. It draws in ideas and practices from many other disciplines and areas. Whatever I thought would work the best to the specific theme of the lesson. There's There are nine lessons to mm-hmm. be worked over the course of nine months, like a pregnancy. And also, also wow. the number nine is, is very important in karma because there are nine-year cycles in karma, similar to what we talked about at the beginning of the uh, program. Wow. And, and uh, each one comes at it from a different angle so that you get a wide variety of processes and, and ways to essentially stop the karmic process for at least a moment so that you can get some consciousness in there, uh-huh. get some consciousness and responsibility in there, instead of simply reacting mechanically as people so often do, and and ways to alleviate and burn up karmic patterns that exist, and create a little bit of freedom, so that uh, you start to unravel your own karma and thus the uh, greater karma of the world, because the one metaphor that I use is the idea of pulling a thread unravels a fabric. So if you can unravel your own karmic fabric, then you become the thread being pulled in the world's fabric. And uh, the more people work the course, <laughs> yeah. uh, the more of that the more of that occurs. And you can at least get a a community of people who have. Uh, cut their puppet strings, to use another metaphor. Yeah. And uh, cut their puppet strings from being tangled up with everybody else's puppet strings. And, right. And uh, it's just a tiny little bit of freedom to right. act consciously and uh, undeterministically. So. Wow, that's, that's, that's excellent. So, you know, listening to you talk about it, one of the things I thought about when you said that, um, so the traditional uh, way that people talk about karma the common way popular way is people conceive of the idea of karma as being a system of reward and punishment for actions based upon a uh, ethical system that comes from some central authority figurehead um and and it's really the way the way you're approaching it is like really like it's really like making a left-hand path versus right-hand path distinction. Now, we're talking about the same – it's the same things happening in the universe, but we're talking about the laws of cause and effect, and we're just – we're striking away the illusion, the delusion that all of this stuff is being managed by a central authority or could be managed by a central authority. And obviously, this is an idea that – this is a very popular idea that a central – you know authority could manage you know all the billions of people in the world's transactions and do that effectively and religiously they think god does that and then and conventionally people will tend to think that the government can do that so so that's that's one point i want to make is that it, it, it in one sense it feels like you're making a right-hand path and a left-hand path distinction about karma um the other thing i was going to mention is um ospensky in his book uh new model of the universe i believe he talks about yoga he has a chapter on yoga and he talks about all the there's like you know five or six kinds of yo different yogas out there um hatha yoga for breathing uh janana yoga for something else so on and so forth right. uh, and there's the yoga where that 
I mean, most people, when you say yoga, they think of, you know, the, the kind where you move your body around and, and, and asanas. Yes, exactly. Um, but then there's also karma yoga. He talks about karma yoga and he says, karma yoga is the yoga of observing the laws of the universe. Well, you said observing, uh, cause and effect in the universe and deriving principles based on that. And it's a very intellectual pursuit. And, and he, he, and he pauses, he pauses in his, um, expository on yogas. He, he pauses on karma yoga to say, this is like really important because really a lot of things are very similar to this. I think in one sense, he, he, he considered that, uh, Gurdjieff's system was basically a form of, uh, karma yoga evolved into a more uh, Western uh, sort of paradigm. Well, yeah, it is, it is important for the reasons that we uh, just went over because it's everything that's going on is karmic. Uh-huh. <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's of ultimate importance. And I have called this uh, course, because I actually wrote it about three years ago. It took a while to get it out. And uh, that's kind of an interesting story in itself. But I'll just say that, like, it seemed like the universe did not want this book out there. Every every possible thing that could go wrong, right. and getting getting closer to publication and glitches like, and files and things like that. Like but what? it's out now. Well, like why? Tell us. You know what what happened? Give us. Tell oh us well, there were first of all just a lot of issues in my life personally after I did the book, and I was also doing karmic rituals at the same time, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it kind of burned away a lot of things in my life to a certain extent and uh, made things worse instead of better at first. And uh, so that was the major delay in getting it out. Then uh, as we got closer to publication, there were just, like I said, glitches in the files. Um, you know, uh, our friend Fergal, he does the, uh, mm-hmm. the book covers. Uh-huh. He, had, he had issues going on. It, you know, in his life at the time that were kind of like, you know, making it not really his top priority to uh, be involved with the project. But thankfully, he did uh, he did uh, do our cover, which is very nice. And uh, and there were just then there were like money issues, like there was an emergency, like right the day before publication and uh, had to remake the uh the fees for the for the printer out of like doing a kind of fire sale on advanced copies and that kind of thing so just lots of little things but at towards the end but it just really started to feel that way so it's almost like the the um process of bringing the book to market was a lesson in karma it it was yes and uh I've been telling everybody over the course of these years about it that it I've been calling it left-hand path karma yoga mm-hmm. explicitly, but I don't really need to call it left-hand path because I say that to our left-hand path people so that they'll pay attention because I feel yeah. like karma is a thing that they would normally not pay attention to. Yeah. And, and uh, so I call it that just to get their attention. And uh, but it just it is what it is. It is what is out there. It is the, what works, you know, so. Yeah. You don't really have to call it left-hand path. You know, I, we... I, I think you're making such an important point there that's like worth stopping and pausing on. And that's the idea. And there's so many things I think that we can apply this to. And it's the idea that left-hand path and that term left-hand path, 
is sort of a necessary convention of where we are um, in, in, in place and time at this point in civilization. And that when we go back, you know, um, when we go back, well, left-hand path is just essentially means the real path of individuality. This is just the, it, it just it simply refers to the spiritual path before someone came along and said, well, let's take the symbols from this spiritual path and turn, turn it into a system of uh, coercion and, and force and control um, to exploit people with. And then, and, and then it became, you know, then it became the religion and years later people like wake up and realize they need to like somehow split away from this, but they still want to maintain, they want to do something with the core essence of this, these ideas in there that seem like valuable. And then the idea of an alternative path, an alternative spiritual path um, starts to emerge from that. Cause I was thinking about the same thing when I said that, when I said, this is like kind of like a left-hand path karma well, when Ospensky is talking about the different kinds of yoga, he's not um, – he doesn't make that distinction. He says, no, this is just like karma yoga. And most people misunderstand it and think that it means that there is a universal system of ethics, a, an intelligent <laughs> system of ethics that's working out the rewards and punishments for every every uh, transaction that, that occurs in the universe. But no, karma yoga simply means cause and effect – individuals interacting um sure. in the universe i think maybe maybe like bhakti yoga devotion yoga is the only thing that we would call a right hand path uh-huh. but even even that doesn't necessarily have to be true right i mean because because uh you know we we on the left hand path we 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 love things we are devoted to things in our way you know and it's not it's not a submission to those things in the way that a right-hand path devotion would be. So, so you might want to make a distinction between right and left-hand paths in something like bhakti yoga, but the the karma yoga just is what it is. And if you were talking about right-hand path karma yoga, you would be talking about essentially if it was going to do anything, if it was going to have any kind of effect, it would be essentially what we call left-hand path practices. Mm-hmm. With some kind of religionist gloss over them, you know. So excellent. And so, um, so the book is—it's a course study. You said is, and it goes through like yes. nine parts, and it's like stuff that you can do. Like, what kind oh, of yeah. things? Like ob- observational things, or or right. like well, the very ceremonial first, things. All of those. All of those. Uh, you know, most of my books tend to be just big glorified lists of things to do, exercises mm-hmm. and, and things like that. And uh, my my thing, because some, some, some of the things I write about are, are new and innovative and they're different from past systems. So I say, just do the things and see what happens, you know, rather than taking my word for it. But these... These lessons start out, the very first lesson just explains historically different kinds of karma that exist to provide an intellectual understanding of the subject so so people get clear on what it is and what it isn't and i think that starts to unravel your karma a little bit right there mm-hmm. and the only exercise there is to just sit and think about the forces that led you to be sitting where you're sitting and the forces that led to that and so on working your way backward through cause and event chains of action and reaction 
And I mean, if you did it thoroughly enough, you'd get back to the uh, creation of the universe, obviously. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but the idea is just to do that for a month and you start to think karmically. Mm -hmm. So you've, you've, you're training your brain to think karmically. The next uh, section, which is probably the biggest lesson, has uh, the exercises for learning to enhance your willpower and to detach from your thoughts and emotions and get a certain amount of mastery over them. And those are the skills that you really need to get on with the rest of the work. And then you get into some things that are rituals and like uh, practices for living as you go through, you, you deal with. You deal with, for example, some past life regression issues, which is a thing that people associate almost automatically with karma, is past lives and things like that. But I assure the reader in there that you can either take this as psychological material or as a literal past life if you believe in reincarnation, that kind of thing. But either way, it doesn't matter. Treat it like a dream. Treat it like something your mind is giving you to analyze and certainly don't identify with it because if we're asking people in the in the book to break their identifications with their own character issues in this life, we certainly don't want to then latch on to something from a life that you're not living anymore, even if it was real. Right. To, to you know, that's that's there's no purpose in that. So what's so your just, what's your personal take? I have to ask, what's your personal take on that? I mean, do you think uh, reincarnation is does that happen? Is it a possibility or? Well, I don't, I don't think anything is impossible necessarily, but I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm entirely agnostic on, on the issue. They asked me this on the, the other interview that I was talking about. Uh -huh. and I just told them I was completely agnostic on the subject. And there are, there's an issue of like resolving karma with your ancestors, which is an extension of the ancestor work that I put in the black ship. And, and, you know, you can, you can take that psychologically too. And, and anybody can work this book regardless of their belief system mm -hmm. because it's just things that you do. And then you, and I'm like, do the things first and then you can analyze and explain what happens right. after had an experience, you know? So, and then, and then for example, the other big thing in, in, uh, karma that we have already touched upon is ethics. There's an entire lesson on ethics where you do a moral inventory similar to what they do in Alcoholics Anonymous, that kind of thing, and try to make some restitutions. And where you can't make restitutions, there is a ritual for that just to kind of psychologically relieve yourself of it or to magically relieve yourself of it, depending on, again, what your own personal belief system is about it. It works either way. Uh-huh. And each of these lessons, different people will probably get different effects out of them. You know, some will be impacted by one lesson more and another person will be impacted by a different lesson more. But I think that I think that ethics and moral inventory uh, lesson is one that will obviously have a lot of dramatic impact for people in the present moment when they when they work on it. Yeah. Those are because those are the social issues and life issues that are usually most heavily weighing on somebody's mind, either consciously or unconsciously. So. Right. And and there's a conflict with that, too, because I think people often when people are trying to um, break away from the right hand path and I, I don't know, for some reason, you know, 
you and I, we probably tend to meet a lot of people who are trying to break away from the right-hand path. But uh, a lot of the issues that they have with that is that they're trying to reject this uh, morality from this like previous system. Right. And so what some people do, I think, mistakenly is to reject the whole concept of morality and the whole concept of ethics and to conclude that um, you know, we live in an amoral sort of universe uh, where that those sorts of things don't matter, and you just do do whatever, and 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 things are more based on feeling, and whatnot. And you know, the ironic thing is that everyone comes back to everyone does come back to ethics and morality, and you have to come back to it because it's part of it's part of being human. Um, and you do it, I think, like you said, either consciously or unconsciously. Well, it goes but back it, to the very beginning of our conversation when we said that it was a fallacy of individualism that people think we don't believe in any kind of cooperation or anything, but obviously uh -huh. we do. The, our whole existence is predicated upon it. We just want it to be voluntary cooperation, and the cooperation has to be voluntary by definition, yeah. as we said. So that's where your ethics and your morality comes in. And so that's another fallacy of the left-hand path spiritually, is that kind of amorality that you talk about. And, and in this particular lesson that I was describing, I have the person do the moral inventory based on whatever system of ethics or morals that they believe in. But then I have them do it again based on, you know, what we call the non-aggression principle, the, uh, uh -huh. the idea of not uh, acting coercively to other people as the, uh, the central principle. So you're really doing two moral inventories unless, of course, the non-aggression principle was what you started out with. So. Oh, wow. That's that's awesome, man. That sounds so exciting. I can't wait to read this read this book. And this is um, um, this is through uh, your your publishing company, Horngate Media. Horngate Media, yes, and uh, it's on it's on Amazon.com. That's uh, right there for everybody. So excellent. And I'll get a link from you too when we uh, put this episode up and on uh, on uh, SoundCloud and and iTunes well, and stuff. And, yeah, I mean, it's just it's just. The Karma Sutra by Edward Pandemonium on Amazon.com. It'll come up. Easy enough. For it, yeah. Awesome. So it is, it is the Karma Sutra. It's not the Karma book. Right. The title okay. is Karma Sutra. Okay. It's, it's Pandemonium's Karma Sutra. Right. That's awesome. Well, very cool. So, so what about this? How does uh, – explain to me this. How does Bata, the right of the hornless one, fit into all of this? The headless one. The headless one. <laughs> well, it really doesn't all that much. Uh, that's just a thing that we had as a private conversation. But, uh, <laughs> but, the, but the name of Set, Bata, the name of the aspect of Set called Bata, it means, well, you know, Ba doesn't really mean soul, but a Ba is part of the soul complex. But if you're translating the name... It can roughly mean something like soul of bread or soul of earth. Uh -huh. And uh, we, we were talking again about substance. Like if, it, if we're talking about soul of earth, then Bata is more on my side with my black earth concept and the world soul and things like that. If we talk about uh. soul of bread, it gets more on your side with Epiusios and, 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 and so on. And the idea of the world soul, we often think of Leviathan, you know, as the world soul, Leviathan specifically, as depicted in the Dibaya, yeah, excuse me, the Diabolicon 
the statement of Leviathan more so than in the uh, grimoires when they talk about Leviathan. But it's all kind of interconnected there. And uh, Don Webb, in his book, The Seven Faces of Darkness, he talks about this rite, the rite of the headless one, which is the original Egyptian ritual that uh, the bornless ritual from the Golden Dawn came from in Crowley's Libra Samek, which I mentioned earlier, which is the invocation of uh, the demon. Mm-hmm. And uh, he associates it in, in the book with, uh, he associates Batha with that ritual and associates Batha with uh, the constellation of Draco. So, and, and of course, Draco was the, uh, the polar constellation through, through ancient times and much of classical antiquity. And, uh, but in, um, but in uh, the, the, the previous manifestation of Bata um, with uh, the Crowley ritual, it, it refers to bread. Well, the Bata is not in the is not in the Crowley ritual. Oh, okay. No, no. Bata is is an aspect of Set. You know, we talk about the tale of two brothers, the ancient Egyptian story, where Bata goes through all these different transformations and eventually becomes Pharaoh and eventually becomes a god, and and so on. That's 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 where that name comes from, is is Egyptian. So the bread, Don Webb, so Don Webb associated it with Bata. You would have to ask him why and how, because he doesn't really say in the book where okay. that uh, connection comes from. We'll find out. We'll find out from him later. But um, so, but in the original, the right of the headless one, there's a bread. Where where does the bread come in? There isn't bread. There is no bread. <laughs> no, no bread. <laughs> Just this name Batha can be translated as soul of bread, and Don Webb connects Batha. Oh, I gotcha. See, no, I see where that's coming from. So that's uh, so um, that that connects with Epiusios, because in right. the, the passage uh, from uh, from Matthew, where they say, "Give us this day this uh, the daily bread." is uh, originally translated with the word epiusios, which is super substantial, which gives us this day our super substantial bread. So, right. um, so yeah, so that's very significant. And, and, and to me, that all, that all connects back with, um, you know, the idea of, of, um, of uh, higher substances that we consume, like you mentioned a couple of times throughout this, the idea that we consume different degrees of like substances, we transform right. them within us. And then and if, regurgitate and if, them out to the universe. Uh huh. If Bata can be associated with Draco, if that is a legitimate connection, then it's interesting. You know, the the Ophite Gnostics, they would lay out bread on a table and let snakes kind of wind their way around through the bread. So you're getting this snakeified bread that they were then using as a kind of Eucharist. You know. It's 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 there's definitely some interesting connections there. Dude, snakeify bread, I'm writing that down. <laughs> there's something we can do with that. Sweet. Um no, that's uh all 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 wonderful things. I mean, I I absolutely 100% the idea that everything like comes back around to the idea of first of all, I mean, recurring themes that we're talking about here is that um, in individuality and freedom necessitates um, the concept of exchanging value 
and that the idea, once you have the possibility of exchanging value, the motivation or desire is always driven for maximizing that, for exchange, for creating the highest amount of value um, and not just obtaining value. I think that's one problem when people uh, have when they uh, start when, – when, when they um, – Start looking at these ideas of exchange and stuff like that. I mean, that's like one of the uh, kind of the Marxian idea that well, any kind of exchange is just someone exploiting someone else. So any kind of exchange is basically theft. The um, idea that there's a loser in every transaction, right? Right, that right. Somebody gains and somebody loses, without taking into consideration the subjective nature of the value. So. Right. The subjective nature and the value, and also that the exchange that occurs is not just a an attempt to grab you know grab and take this value it's an attempt to create value to remanifest value to remanifest a higher level or a higher octave or higher manifestation of value and i mean that i think is something that um what you were talking about with uh, uh with the karma sutra uh doing a deep dive on one's values um, exploring one's values, one's one's moral fiber, and everything—that's that's something that helps one get to the point um, where a they understand um, that these exchanges are about creating value, but also um, you begin to understand the significance of trying to make that effort to produce um, a higher level of value. Absolutely, yeah. And that goes back to, I said I wasn't going to digress into alchemy, but... uh, Go for it. Do it. You have, as I say, the components of the stone. The sulfur is the essence of a thing, and the mercury is the kind of transmissive, communicative substance, and then the salt is like substantial substance. So you would, for example, to make gold, you would somehow extract the essential goldness of gold and apply it to a certain amount of suitable mercury that you would then project onto a suitable salt and the salt would be transmuted into gold so the again you have a you have an essential concept uh, a communicative transmitting concept that makes the exchange possible and then you have the substantial just basis onto which it's all projected yeah and uh, that relates back to that same trinity or triplicity in the pandemonium formula that i spoke about at the very beginning it it touches on what you're talking about right now and of course when you're talking about substance and so on it it, it, our our both of our concepts of either the epiusios or the uh, black earth as as i call pandemonium sometimes it's it's uh it's all there yes it's It's all all there there. it's all there it's all all there and it's all happening right well excellent well uh pandemonium any any uh final any final thoughts for us this evening well obviously everyone is in a terrible karmic mire and needs to rush to amazon.com and purchase the karma sutra as soon as possible Mm-hmm. Your very life depends on it, obviously. <laughs> uh, and and I and I hope they check out the black ship as well if they're inclined along those ways. And uh, I'm always looking for p- 
people who appreciate these ideas to interact with more personally, as that is part of the formula. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we've I think we've covered everything pretty well. I think we have. Well, thank you, uh, Pandemonium, for spending this time with us this evening. Yeah, well, thank everyone. You for Absolutely. Everyone who's listening to this, go get the black ship, get the Karma Sutra, go find Pandemonium online, go on Facebook and find the Blackheart campaign group on there and connect and make things happen. Build your own black ship. That's right. Build your own black ship and help us all create Pandemonium on Earth. Yes. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> Shemham Farash. Yes. Well, oh, oh, oh. before we go, I'll oh. tell you, I, I feel that the Shemham Farash in the satanic ritual was a placeholder for the coming of pandemonium because the Shemham Farash just means the name, the 72-fold name. And if you look at the if you look at what that means, you're talking about perhaps the 72 demons of the Goetia. So you're saying Shemham Farash is a shorthand way of saying all the demon names simultaneously or invoking the kind of continuum of all those demons. So they didn't have pandemonium yet to say, but we have it now. Wow. That's deep, man. (laughs) I'll buy it. No, people, you heard it here first. Shimham Farash was the placeholder. Yeah. (laughs) Shimham Farash was the placeholder for pandemonium. I'll buy that. All right. Well, thanks again, and uh, you have a good night. All right, brother. You take care. Take care. Kefir. Kefir. Where did he come from? The answers lie in another part of the universe. Some 40,000 light years from our own sun, on a line with the constellation Eve. E, the fifth planet out from its sun. Eve, the fifth planet out from its sun. E,